0: You're listening to Bella Figura, the tradition of living beautifully. I am your host, Dolores Alfieri Taranto. And on this show, we talk spirituality for the rest of us, with a focus on the art of beautifying all facets of your life, using heritage, culture, beauty by hand, ancestral traditions, and old world style as a means to do so. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the show. Hope you had a good week. It is pretty early in the morning here in New York when I'm recording this introduction. And I have just slid some baguettes, some einkorn sourdough baguettes, into the oven. I have been baking my bread super early in the morning because, of course, it's starting to get hot. So if I feel like I can't help myself and I need to make some fresh bread. I've just been making it a point to get the dough shaped and ready to go before I've even had my coffee. And I was thinking last night that one of the hardest parts for me when I first really started making sourdough bread from scratch was timing. So I I had times where I was up until midnight (laughs) finishing bread And it took me a while of just trying and trying and reading and researching and and talking to people to realize a rhythm that really worked for me. So if you're in that position, what I do is I make the pate fermenté, if I'm saying that correctly, it's French for basically a pre-ferment. I make that around like four o'clock the day before I'm about to make bread. And it takes about four hours for that to be ready. So then right when I'm getting ready for bed around eight, nine o'clock, then I mix the dough. I let it sit for an hour, I turn it, and then I just wrap it up and I put it in the fridge and I go to sleep. In the morning, you just take it out and then it's maybe another hour where you you shape it, you let it sit, and then you just throw it in the oven. So there's a, there's a semi-pro tip. <laughs> I don't know that I call myself a pro, but definitely a lot of trial and error. And uh, I found that that's the best way for me to get fresh loaves made without exhausting myself. It's a really good pace. And then the bread is ready super early in the morning and you can enjoy it all day long. Okay. Before I introduce you to our guest today, poet, essayist and undertaker Thomas Lynch. I do just want to remind you that I am over on Substack putting out a an exclusive publication, The Tradition of Living Beautifully. It's delivered several times a month directly to your inbox and it's more of the content that you see me talking about on Instagram and talking about here on the show. It's just a deeper dive different angles, a little bit more intimate and just exclusive things that you're not going to read, hear, or see anywhere else. I've linked to my Substack page in the show notes. It's deloristoronto.substack.com. There are free memberships, paid memberships. Each one gets something different. You can check out that information by hopping over to Substack. I hope you will Join me there. It's a great way to show your appreciation and support for all of the free content I've been putting out for many years now. And it's also a way for you just to continue to get inspiration on beauty by hand, old world style and ancestral traditions. And of course, a big shout out to our new sponsor this season, House of Tokamen. House of Tokamen sources hand-woven, vintage, clean rugs made with natural materials. These are non-toxic rugs made in an old world style by women throughout the world for other women to bring into their homes owner founder friend Annabelle Alsup is super knowledgeable about these rugs check her out over on Instagram at house of Tokumen t-o-c-u-m-e-n she gives out so much information on what to look for in a vintage rug so if you're out and about shopping at a uh, thrift store or an antique store You can learn a bit about what you should look for, but even more importantly, Annabelle has an amazing online shop. I mean, you guys, she's constantly putting up new rugs that she's sourced from somewhere wonderful in the world. These are gorgeous, they're authentic, and they're durable. I have been, with Annabelle's help, slowly swapping out my toxic big box store rugs for her gorgeous vintage natural ones. It feels really good to lay down on a rug with my son and play and read him a book knowing that what we're laying on, what's in my home aligns with what I believe in, aligns with what I believe is most important and what I value. Annabelle is offering a Bella Figueroa listeners 25% off any rug Use the code BELLA25 over at hotrugs.net, and I'll link to that in the show notes. And definitely check out her gorgeous collection of rugs, 25% off BELLA25. And now on to the show. You guys, I have done hundreds of interviews between the Italian American podcast and this podcast. It's been about eight years since I've been podcasting. I have done a lot of important shows, but I have to say, this to me feels among my most important. It's a very unique deep dive into something I have talked about before. And I really feel as if God sent me Thomas Lynch to allow me to explore this kind of unexplored topic for all for all of us because I know so many of you DM me and message me, reach out to me, asking questions about grief and death and mourning because it's really hard in American society to be the way we are, (laughs) the way this Bella Figura community is and see things and feel things the way we do and honestly mourn and grieve and bury our dead in the way that this society tells us is appropriate. And Thomas Lynch is the perfect guest to explore ways that old world ways that this used to be done versus modern ways that we're currently doing it and how to kind of find our way back and also to validate the way people like you and I feel on this subject. So I'm really excited. I feel like this episode is a mini manifesto of sorts for a book I'm working on. Something that I'm, I'm really looking forward to sharing with all of you, hopefully sometime very soon. And as I always say on the show, my guests come to me right when I need them. And Thomas Lynch is no exception. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Thomas Lynch is the author of five collections of poems and four books of essays, as well as a book of stories, apparition, and late fictions. His work has been the subject of two film documentaries, PBS Frontline's The Undertaking, which won the 2008 Emmy Award for Arts and Culture documentary, and Learning Gravity, produced for the BBC, featured at the 2008 Telluride Film Festival, and awarded the Michigan Prize. He has taught with the Department of Mortuary Science at Wayne State University in Detroit, with the graduate program in writing at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and with the Candler School of Theology, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. His essays, poems, and stories have appeared in The Atlantic and Granta, The New York Times and Times of London, The New Yorker, Poetry, and The Paris Review, and elsewhere. He lives in Milford, Michigan, where he has been the funeral director since 1974 and in Movine County, Clare, Ireland, where he keeps an ancestral cottage. All right, folks, get comfy, get a glass of wine. And that's my timer to rotate the baguettes. I'll be right back. Okay. (laughs) Grab a glass of wine, grab a cup of coffee, get comfortable. You're going to love this conversation. Thomas, welcome
1: to Bella Figura. Hello, Dolores. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. I was uh, telling you before we jumped on Mike how excited I am to speak with you. That's one of the reasons, uh, one of the main reasons I love having a podcast is I pick guests that I want to talk to. And it's so great because uh, you come across their work and what they do. And I just sometimes, uh, like someone like you, I just want to explore a lot of your message in more depth so thanks for joining me
1: i'm glad to be here
0: before we start i like to ask all my guests to tell me a little bit about their roots and the people that they come from
1: well i'm um a native detroiter and um i grew up in suburban detroit and uh uh michigan has been my home um for the 73 years that I've been uh, on the planet. And um, early in my, um, I guess my late teens, early twenties, I became aware that um, uh, my Irish American connection, which up until that time had been uh, sort of inheriting my grandfather's green ties and tweed coats, I, I decided, because I'd been reading um, Joyce and Yates and Kavanaugh, I decided that I should probably, uh, and this happened after I got a high number in the Nixon draft lotto. You're probably not old enough to remember that. I don't remember it, it,
0: but I know about it.
1: Okay, good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when it became clear that I wasn't going to be going to Vietnam, as so many Mm -hmm. men of my generation were going to, um, I decided I should do something of substance since I was a lackluster student and uh, I hadn't done anything uh, uh, to merit any uh, you know any notice so I decided to go to Ireland and find what was left of um, my family which at that time was something that attached itself to family meals where we would always end the prayer by Praying for Tommy and Nora on the banks of the River Shannon in County Clare. Now, <clears throat> nobody in my father's generation or my grandfather's generation knew the banks of the River Shannon from uh, the banks of the River Rouge or Ecorse <laughs> or any place else, but um, they repeated it because they'd been taught to repeat it, and. Um, Um, but I decided to go back. It was uh, February of 1970. I flew over there, arrived at the gate uh, with $100 in my pocket and no prospects and a one-way ticket, and these two people, both in their 60s at the time, uh, they were brother and sister. I thought they were spouses, but they were brother and sister, bachelor and spinster, and they took me into their um, 600-square-foot home. Um, They had uh, wallpapered a storage room for me and put a bed in there. And there was just enough room for the bed, a chair, and to open the door. And there was a window to the back, haggard. So I stayed, I think, three or four months that first time, and it changed my life, living in a way that was at that time so different from life in suburban mm. michigan and it gave me a better sense of um how my family came to be the way they are mm. the the sort of uh, entanglements of uh, religion and politics and um and uh, gene pool that uh, amounted to us and right. uh, so I've just kept going back for the last half century and more. I'll be going next week for another visit, the first time since the mm. pandemic has loosened its hold.
0: So. Right, and you you've been kind of splitting your time between Ireland and the states, correct?
1: Well, certainly my my conscious time, yeah. I yeah. <laughs> I suppose and I I suppose I would spend a couple or three months there every year, but some years like last year, not at all. Right. Right. And of the circumstances. now I'll go for two months and, uh, and I might decide to stay longer. Who knows, right. you know,
0: right. Just giving listeners a sense that we're, you're not talking, like you're visiting once every two years for a couple of weeks, like, you know, this is a, this uh, a no. very big part of your life.
1: Well, a couple, three times a year. And the older you get, as you know, yourself, Dolores, the, mm-hmm. um, when you form attachments to a place and the people who are become your neighbors, at some point you begin to have to pay the freight on that. So the, Mm. the baptisms and confirmations and weddings get replaced by the funerals Mm. and wakes. Mm. So lately it's funerals and wakes that Mm. I go back for what they call, uh, how long you home for, Mm. but they would expect. And one of the, one of the great um, pain, uh, one of the great uh, damages done by uh, the pandemic was that um you know near and dear neighbors of mine died the nearest and dearest of neighbors of mine died not always of uh, COVID 19 but uh, two of them i should have been you know i should have been on the detail that opened their graves and i i wasn't able to go yeah it's, inter- it's
0: interesting that you bring that up right at the start because as i was preparing to speak with you one of my notes is um in, in the documentary where I first came across you, uh, my Substack subscribers will know what I'm talking about because in one of my, uh, what I'm reading and watching and listening to lists, I included that documentary because I thought they would really enjoy it. And in that documentary, there is so, um, called Death in the Civil War, which you are in as a commentator. There are so many references to a good death Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how during that period before, especially before the civil war, because the whole point of the, we'll get into that. But the whole point mm-hmm. of the documentary is how much the civil war changed things, yes. uh, both in the nation and in terms of our view and approach to death and the afterlife. And um, one of my notes for you was I, that one of the tragedies, the biggest sins to me of the lockdowns whatever you may think of them, that they were necessary, that they were not, that's not what I'm talking about. Regardless, was that people did not have good deaths.
1: That's correct.
0: And I was fortunate. I did know somebody who passed during that time, but not like my immediate family. And I thank God for that. But I think of those souls that had nobody at their side, that died alone in hospital beds, that afterwards did not have the burials the wakes the grieving like they should and to me it's like very haunting
1: Mm. I think you're right to to acknowledge that um that we failed uh we failed ourselves actually because as I've written I think in several languages now the dead don't care I mean once Mm. you're dead uh any damage that can be done to you has been done and um But for the living, not to have the uh, company and comfort of friends and relations and people who can uh, add their narratives to the bank of stories that we have to put up to get through grief and bereavement, um, that is a terrible, terrible thing. And when, as for example, in Ireland, where they're accustomed to a two or three day wake depending on how the weather uh is <clears throat> they were doing things like, like my neighbor j.j uh, mcmahon the bed of heaven to him died on the 23rd of of uh of december um he was wake one night and buried the next day from the mm. church uh, in Carrigaholt, uh, which was his parish and um yeah that w- that would be unheard of i mean they all got together the guys were playing cards in his kitchen and he was laying in his bed i mean his corpse was laying in the bed done up nicely with a prayer book under his chin and um his hands folded with a rosary everything was done but it was all fairly rushed uh, as much by the holidays as by the contagion that we could we couldn't his family couldn't afford to take what well, couldn't afford in in terms of the pestilence to take him into a, a larger gathering right. which would which would have been typical
0: right exactly yeah, yeah. exactly so i do want to get back at some point uh, in our conversation to talking about ireland and your ancestry but since we've kind of jumped right into this sure, topic yeah. Yeah. let's just keep going uh, i obviously you're part of your business you're a poet you're also an undertaker it's family business i Love this combination. I think when you're the first person I've met who has this combo, uh, you are in a line of many other great poets who have had professional jobs, T.S. Eliot, William Carlos Williams. It's not unheard of to to do that, uh, but a poet seems perfectly suited to also be an undertaker and vice versa in my my weird little outlook perhaps on life.
1: On the other hand, Dolores, it's kind of the literary equivalent of uh, it's not exactly the cop who sings opera. Yeah. It's, more like, <laughs> it's more like the proctologist with the sideline <laughs> and root canal. Because no one wants no one wants anything to do with poetry. Uh, they like it, they, they like it, you know, in very I tiny see where you're doses. going. Yeah. And no one wants a funeral. So right. these are not things people do on their vacation. So, perhaps,
0: yeah, they're, perhaps they're not the uh, the uh, as we would say in uh, in modern slang, today, the the sexiest professions that that appeal to everyone, but they're they're right. certainly they're certainly both necessary. And this this idea of a good death, I was thinking about it reading your wonderful uh, memoir, "Booking Passage: We Irish and Americans," and also from the comments you made in the uh, death in the Civil War documentary. I feel like we have gotten very far from this at least in this country uh, from this idea of a good death. And in my own southern italian culture heritage there is a very popular proverb better a good death than a, a bad life.
1: Well, that's that's an elegant uh, bromide. I have a a poem that ends I think with the with the calculation that a good death is all the same; some better than a bad one. Mm. So uh, it's based on the difference between good and bad. Yes. But we have, and what I mean to say is, there are there are good deaths. There really are good deaths. I've I've heard of and watched and been present for good deaths, and there are bad ones. And mm-hmm. you're exactly right to uh, to say that the deaths that we watched taking place or heard of taking place while we accumulated very quickly a hundred thousand and 200,000 and now a million deaths in this country uh, r- related to COVID. Um, so many of those were done in isolation. They were not, we think of the good death as St. Joseph with Jesus at one side of the bed and Mary at the other, and probably someone else from the neighborhood to, you know, to be bringing them tea every once in a while. Mm. Um, But everything that needs to be said is given a chance for saying.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: You know, my mother who died of lung cancer, the bed of heaven to her 30 years ago, had, as cancer often does, uh, the benefit of sort of holding forth to all of us Mm. until she couldn't hold forth at all. Whereas Mm -hmm. my father died a couple years later of the heart attack that always had his name on it, Mm. but he was not entirely alone, but he may in his own, he was alone as far as his immediate family was concerned. He was uh, as often happens with men and a heart attack. He was with the woman he chose to be with and they were enjoying themselves. Mm. And then, and then he died as, and he ended up in sort of a, a punchline for a joke that always ends with, but what a way to go. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so
0: still considered a good death
1: <laughs> by his friends, but of course, so, yeah. No, yes. but for those yes. of us who wish we could have had 10 absolutely. more minutes or 10 more words or one more phone. That's call. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And as somebody who, even at my, I mean, relatively young age, I am, I am creeping up in the years, but I have actually been at the bedside of several people uh, that i loved who who have died right in front of me and there is really I, I say to people i write about this i talk about it i i say to people if you've never experienced that god bless you but also i feel bad for you
1: yes i know exactly what you mean yeah
0: right because there is some this is it's a sacred space there you go i just got chills which is I've been getting chills the whole time we've been talking because we're talking about true real things and I think what I'm trying to get at with this question about a good death and whether our society even cares about that anymore or focuses on it is I I do feel like it's this symptom of us focusing on just the most bizarre things that don't matter
1: well we're yeah I think I think you know, uh, American culture is particularly um, offended by death and embarrassed mm, by death. What a great and, way to put it. Pardon the pun. They're mortified by yeah. it. You know? <laughs> uh, they, but um, they think that as with, mo- as with most problems, if we simply apply enough study or enough time or enough yeah. money, it can be fixed. But the numbers on mortality are really convincing because they hover right around 100 percent century after century (laughs) after century yeah regardless of our 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 scientific advances regardless Mm -hmm. of our our fiscal or policy advances it doesn't matter Um, yeah we die full stop right
0: yeah it seems to be something that we can't believe we haven't solved yet with everything yeah. else, we seem to think we've been, able- it's like evil. Flann- yeah. the, the Southern writer, Flannery O'Connor, has one of my, my favorite quotes. And she says, evil is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery right. to be endured. Exactly. Right. And it, it's as if we cannot accept that. We have to legislate it out. We have to, I don't know, medicate it out. And I, don't get me wrong. I mean, we need to, we need to do things to keep the most evil among us in check and not ruining our society. But at the bottom... It's it's an it's just a mystery, just like death. It's just something we don't understand.
1: As is life. And right. so, um, when my daughter, in the summer of the first summer of the pandemic, um, who who had always suffered with mental illness, um, when she left her husband after so many other sort of difficult situations that she had sort of found herself in and drove across country in a pandemic out to California and leapt to her death off the Golden Gate Bridge. My my dearest, among my dearest friends, all of whom responded, but one that really touched me was from uh, Tom Long, who is a a preacher and, and writer and We've collaborated on a book and many projects, but he wrote to me from his outpost in Maryland and said, this pandemic keeps me from doing what I'm inclined to do, which is to rush to your side and sit on that porch of yours and stare in silence into the mystery.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And and really all you can say at a time like that. It's, it's a...
1: exactly the predicament that people find themselves in when there's a death in the family.
0: Yeah,
1: They get caught between this will to do, Dolores, everything and anything and the countervailing intention to do nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we end up somewhere in the middle where by getting the dead where they need to go, we find that the living find their way to where they need to be. Yeah. So beautifully said. Well, it's why funerals are, are the dumb thing. We do them for ourselves. Right. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, another thing that I I talk about often, I I get a lot of messages from people who uh, have lost somebody or, you know, are grieving and they just feel this lack of a proper way that kind of resonates with them to grieve because they what, maybe they're, they're also uh, descendants of Southern, Southern Italians and they kind of have this sense inside of them of the tradition or they want to know more. And because I talk so much about these things, they, they kind of ask me for advice. And what, I'm, what I realize is something I felt myself um, in my 20s. My father died rather suddenly and I felt the same way. I could not find a way to mourn in this society that made sense to me that felt right. And I remember going to the library, looking for books that would kind of, you know, kind of the, um, the book that I'm going to write, because that's kind of what you do, right? You can't, you don't, can't find the thing you want to read. So you just write it,
1: Exactly. <laughs> right?
0: You can't find just the show you, you want to listen to. So you start it. I thank you. <laughs> and I kept looking for this book that, you know, how to mourn your father in a, traditional way or an, an old world way or a deep way. And I couldn't find it. You can find tons of books about, uh, the five steps of grieving, you know, uh, women who lose their husbands, like, like all of this kind of more, I don't want to say on the surface, like they're not deep, but they weren't deep enough for me. Yeah. Right. And what I really remember, and I tell people this all the time when they lose somebody and they come to me and, and they ask these things is, are, like you said earlier, our society is just is a, a mix of horrified and ashamed of death. Mm-hmm. And yeah. right, the other side of that coin is of grief. Yeah. They do not, people do not want to see you grieving. Not really. And I remember I wore black for a month In Southern Italy, the tradition of like everything else everywhere, it's loosening, right? Because now also Southern Italy is modernizing and quote unquote modernizing. So the women would wear black for a year, sometimes longer. And I remember I thought a month, that's my modern hybrid. And people close to me, what are you going to, are you going to wear black? Like, are you going to keep wearing black? And, and everything, people would tell me to snap out of it or like, come on, you got to pull yourself together. I mean, I wasn't like not functioning, but this man who had raised me, loved me, cared for me, was gone. Does he not deserve a single month of my life where I'm expressing, you know, visibly that his absence means something? What is going on in this country?
1: Well, what's going on is <laughs> what's going on is a, a response to something that because we can't fix it, we think we don't want to have anything to do with it. But Italian Americans, like Polish Americans or Irish Americans, or Korean Americans, or and all the other hyphenated versions of our citizenry, yeah, African Americans, uh, Asian Americans. Um, we used to give ourselves uh, something called a year of mourning. Mm. And what that meant was that for a full year after the death of a significant other, and yes, a parent is a significant other, right. for most people, right on par with a sexual partner or life partner or sibling. or So when a parent dies, a year of mourning means that you can be... <clears throat> Crazier than a hood owl, to use the clinical term, <clears throat> weeping at things you should be laughing at, no appetite or twice the appetite. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a year, you can be acting uh, out of sorts and everybody just says, well, that's because, and then they fill in the loss that you've endured. And after that, of course, you're crazy and you need professional help and then everybody comes for and a number and the rest of it. But usually after a year, what happens is uh, our our bereavement, if if we're lucky, and we have not only the cultural uh, permission to mourn, but the religious metaphors for mourning, the the story that says they're okay because they're in heaven, hell, or purgatory, or if we believe, as some of us do, that the spiritual life is not a theory. We're living it so that mm. we, might, we might hear from our dead parents sometime mm-hmm. when, when we really need them. If at the very least we think they know our hearts mm-hmm. so that when we fall in love or our heart gets broken or we don't know the answer to our kids' problems, when we fear this, that, or the other thing, somehow we think the ones that loved us continue to love us and know our heart and hold our purposes up before whomever's in charge here, whoever she is these Mm, days. mm. So that's, if we're lucky, we get through it in a year. And what happens is we trade the grievance for a deep sense of gratitude that we knew that human and had that human. So the 45 years I had my daughter, as hurtful as it often was, as helpless as I often was, and she was too, to figure one another out because she had been estranged from her family for, mm. you know, probably 15 years beforehand, but that's part of the illness she suffered, you know, and we, we all have to say, well, you know, if it's not evil, it's illness. And I didn't believe my daughter was evil. Sure. So right. I assumed she was beset by an illness that I could, I could predict, you know, right. um, But the gratitude for those 45 years now offsets the who can know how many years I'll be without her. But Mm -hmm. I know that the gratitude is a countervailing balance so that I don't now two years hence, I'm not weeping every day. Sometimes my breath is caught in mid sentence when something reminds me of her, Mm -hmm. when Joan Baez um, who's a, a friend of a friend and a constant mentor when she painted my daughter's portrait mm. and sent it to me. Wow. You know, I put it in my bedroom.
0: Yeah.
1: Now I've moved it to a hall. Someday I'll move it right. out where everyone can see it.
0: Yep. I totally
1: get that. Mm-hmm. I know you knew. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, You just see, that was the book I needed. Everything you just said, you know, I needed that. You just explained my journey after my father passed away. It was painful grief that, that I want to say paused my life, but I guess that's not really the right thing to say. I mean, in hindsight, I feel like it was, I derailed or, but it, it was such a darkness and such a heaviness for me. I was, you know, I'm the youngest of four siblings. I was daddy's little girl. We had an amazing relationship he was the person in this world who saw me a certain way. And when he was gone, I knew that that was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, diff, the, the way that I was different from my, my siblings, the, the creative part of me, you know, the, the part of me that would put on an apron and cook, it's, it's different than everybody else. As much as I might have similarities, he saw my uniqueness and he loved it. He just thought that, you know, it, it was great.
1: He got you.
0: He got me. He got me. That's exactly right. He got me. And that heaviness, I just, it, you know, I had been under the delusion. I think that many of us live up until that point, which is my family was different than other families and nothing like this would ever happen to us. We, we have this idea that this is, this is a, um, I, I've written about this a lot as well. It's just, you have this idea that. Ooh, that, those, that family messed up. They lost someone. I don't know what they did. I don't know what they're doing, <laughs> but they made a mistake. But I remember that feeling, a feeling also as we had done something wrong and that everything that kind of pers- uh, unfolded from there in my grief process, I did not understand was a very normal feeling. Mm-hmm. This feeling of you are outside of life. You are not a part of it. You're watching it. And if I had understood that at the time, like this is called grief. Mm. It's okay. Go through it. And then on the other side, just as you explained, I came, I turned a corner and just was full of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Just that I had known this man, that this man had been my father.
1: And well, you know, that, that the, clo- the closest cov- cousin to grief is love. Mm. They are are opposite sides of the one Mm. coin. And the only way to avoid grief is to avoid one another. Because if you get attached to somebody, as we do, even if the feelings are negative, God help us if we love one another, as we're instructed to do. But if we love, we grieve. There are no exceptions. You can't love 50% and grieve 25%. You're absolutely right. And the only way to sort of get back the investment we make in one another when we give our hearts or our history or our kinship or whatever it is we have invested in others. um, uh, The only way we get it back is to grieve fully. The only way around that is through it. And But getting through it, you feel like Well, I've I've earned my stripes. I've paid my dues. But the reason I always say to people, most of this you can do yourself when it comes to funerals. Mm. So if you're going to bury your dead, Mm. bring a shovel. Mm. If you're going to burn your dead, go to the fire. Feel how warm it is. See the light it gives you. And uh, what we owe the dead is witness. And we owe them proper, uh, we owe them the proper, the Bella figura of their last things, you know? Absolutely right. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more.
0: And okay, I'm going to get, I was just about to say, I'm going to get deep here as if like we haven't been, (laughs) as if we've been on the surface, but you know, I know my listeners will go with us. I I mentioned my father's death was sudden, uh, relatively sudden. It was quick. He went in. He wasn't feeling. He didn't look good. We brought him to the hospital. He was fine. He was talking. We were waiting for him to come home, making plans for him to come home. He took a turn. He was gone within two weeks. It it came out of nowhere. Uh, Uh, He was just 62 years old. It wasn't. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. It wasn't a so. So and he was the love of everyone's life. He was the center of every room he walked into. It was a blow to many, many people. Um, was he was a that?
1: real Italian.
0: He was a, he was a real and true Italian. If he was sitting yeah. at the dinner table alone, he was not a happy guy. I understand. Let's just yeah. say it that way. He did not yeah. need alone time at all. <laughs> he I loved all family, friends. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And because it was sudden, you know, it was my first, uh, my uncle had passed away a few years before and that w- was a blow. But you know, your, your father, your parent, it's, it's a different level. And I remember we came home from the hospital and he just died. And it was just this, we were all like, oh my, like what just happened to us? You know, he just, I was there. I remember comforting him because he was struggling and, and we were all obviously sobbing and we came home and that night I thought, oh, we left his body in the hospital, I mean, right. just left it. Strangers mm-hmm. just came in, took him. I don't know these people. I don't know what they're doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then we just hand him off to more strangers, uh, which is your field mm-hmm. <laughs> and you hope that they're good people, but still let's talk a little bit about that, please. Um, that wasn't always the case, correct?
1: No. When, um, if, if you died in your house in Ireland, you simply got, you know, the neighbors would come in, they'd change the sheets on the bed, but for the first couple nights, you'd likely be laid out in your own bed. Right. And people would commandeer your living space to make up the sandwiches and lay out the tea and the porter and the rest of it. And the men would stand out in the yard smoking cigarettes and discussing prices. The women would be inside the room where the corpse was saying the rosary. And then they would switch. And the men would come in to say the rosary. The women would be outside making the tea and smoking cigarettes. And then uh, everybody had their role, and their uh, everybody knew what they were supposed to do. The trouble with <clears throat> our experience in the new world, more or less, is we, we have to reinvent the wheel every time, Dolores, mm. because nobody knows, nobody trusts the way they the dumb thing anymore. Like yeah. the dumb thing was, you lay the dead out among the living, you weep, you laugh, you take them to church. And then you put them in the fire or in the, in the earth or the tomb, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but you get the dead from one station to another in this little journey, this transport while we remove them from the life they're living with us. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And we install them in uh, some permanent repose where we can have them in memory. We don't trust that process anymore. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we skip the, the confrontation between the living and the dead Mm. we dispose of the dead without witness or rubric, you know, and we, and then we have what they call a celebration of life where everybody comes with a nice grin and a catchy story about uncle Frank who, you know, always cheated at golf, but do not say anything like this hurts my heart. I can't stop weeping because the good laugh is appreciated the good cry is forbidden that's why they call it a celebration of life I know a funeral is more than a a funeral celebrates life but it also acknowledges the deep hurt that loving creates the tax that we have to pay on having loved someone for so long
0: absolutely and you know people say to me oh people will say oh this when I die I just want everybody to come and have a party and have drinks and I say, not me. Yeah. I want weeping
1: and gnashing of teeth. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> because oh, it makes sorry. the people who feel like weeping and gnashing feel like they're normal. Right. Right.
0: Yes. So what is happening there? Like, why are we doing that? Is that just go straight back to this fear? We can't fix it. Yeah. We don't understand it. We're not touching it. Is that just and, what it is? And
1: this and the notion that we get off of the again from the market culture, like I, I, people would come in to plan their funerals, you know?
0: Right. Because this
1: that was the, that was the trend in the 1980s. If you plan it, it won't hurt as much mm. or you can control the prices, you know? Yes. You're making better decisions when it's your money, your funeral and leave the kids out of it. You
0: right. Know? Can't trust them. <laughs>
1: you can't trust them because they're going to get everything you leave, yeah. <laughs> but, but don't trust them with it. And, um, but they'd come in and they'd say, well, I don't want to be a burden to my children. And I say, right. well, I do. Right. <laughs> my right. children have all been burdens to me. I right. love them dearly. It's the burden that has made my life yes. meaningful. I know that. I know this. Yes. But, uh, but they want, are certainly I,
0: a burden. Yes. A very, my child is a lot of they work. can
1: do is hoist me down the stairs into a box over to the church if they think I, I belong One, Not just take me to the ground or take me to the fire. Absolutely it won't right. make any difference to me. But whatever they do, They do it. Yep. Yep. They're there. They go the distance with me. And here's the reason why. Because ours is a species that deals with the idea of death by dealing with our dead. Mm -hmm. It is the corpse we have to take care of. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. the idea. Your father didn't cease being your father because he stopped breathing. Right. Right. And his body needed to be taken care of.
0: It did, and I will. I mean, I give myself leeway, understanding that I didn't understand, and but I that weighs on me. Everything you just said, the least I could do was take care of him at that moment when he. I don't want to say needed me most, but like kind of right. He's the
1: epitome he got what he of vulnerable. He got what he needed most from you. you had a good relationship yeah and if if and I you know I don't know what to believe in or disbelieve in, but I do know this my mother knows my heart, she's been dead for years hmm. my father knows my heart yeah yeah, and whatever incarnation or imagination he does or doesn't exist, he knows my heart
0: I love that, I love that, and I know that's going to resonate with a lot of people listening. And uh, I, I I agree. I obviously, I agree very much so. I have I, I think the Irish and the Italians, you know, they do things differently. They also do things similarly and in, in this idea of like the very big family and and a lot of community. we have the tradition of the uh, it's called if I'm remembering the world word correctly, prefika. prefica, I think it is. and it's it's basically the tradition of the mourners. Yeah. And right, this is a very big thing in southern Italian culture. And mm-hmm. I say to people all the time 175 years from now, when my mother passes away, mm-hmm. <laughs> her generation that will be the last of them. And when my uncle passed, and when my father passed, and we were, you know, the family traditionally gets to the funeral parlor before everyone else, everyone, you know, my the rest of my siblings stayed outside because they knew it was about to happen and then there's me. I'm like, I want to see it because mm-hmm. you don't get to see it anymore and they go in and they weep and they moan and they throw themselves on that casket. I know. I'm sure you've seen it and you 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 know you know it well.
1: It's necessary medicine. It's
0: it's so it's necessary medicine. This is what people don't understand. And so I read an article recently like people are hiring people now to do that. Which sounds a little crazy, but also it, I don't know. The question is, can somebody you hire uh, attain the same goal, right? Which is like the transmutation of the grief in the room into something expressive. What they and do
1: is they create, they create an atmosphere in which your grief, yours and yours alone, which wants to scream. Yeah. Uh, it's no one's going to notice because they've created. It's not a in a room full of weeping people. Nobody's scream becomes uh, right. embarrassing. Right. Everybody's doing right. essentially a version of the same thing. Absolutely. What, what's most difficult is to do is to walk into a room in which everyone's trying to be strong for each other, or keep the stiff upper lip, or any other version of that, pretending like this didn't happen. And I often find that kids are the best at this hmm. kids get this. Like I've, I've walked in, I've, you know, I've, well, I've done this all my life. I've, you know, walked a family into a room where at the end of the room is their grandfather or grandmother or somebody they love. And I, there's an age at which kids are so perfectly one-dimensional. You get questions like, where are his feet? Mm, because mm because the coffin is halfway closed right right and the answer is of course here right right just open oh okay (laughs) (laughs) right here they are okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. because that's you know seeing is believing right and that's the terrible horror of such things as happened in buffalo and texas and every other town in which we will have these mass shootings with assault rifles is that so often the it cannot be seen. Mm, yeah. The the Emmett Till moment that yes, all of yes. us, you know, all of us, thanks be to whomever's in charge here, are not disfigured by death. But death is itself a disfigurement, the stillness that your father's body that you see in your father's body when you first see his body laid out, not breathing, his eyes, not opening, his mouth, not smiling, his hands, not moving to hold you and hug you and be with you. And that stillness is just as, um, horrible Mm. and just as worthy of our outrage and our weeping as everything else. So, um, I mean, on on the one hand, Dolores, this is the most natural thing. And when they say, doesn't he look natural? They're telling the truth. It embarrasses us when they say that. Doesn't he look natural? But it is the most natural thing we do. Second only to, um, you know, uh, our lovemaking and birthing, you know?
0: Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was thinking before when you were talking about the bodies laid out on the bed, there are several superstitions that I grew up being told that relate to that. And I don't know if people know that because it's such a big part of life, even to this day, if um, I'm trying to get, you know, my mom's trying to get the coat on the baby Um, on my, I keep calling him a baby. He's a toddler on the toddler. And maybe I see, you know, I'm, I go to pull up his pants or something. And she says in Italian, one person dresses a baby, but one person dresses yeah. a baby at a time. Yeah. And the reason is because when people the only time you are dressed by other people, right, is when you're laid out when you're, out, a, corpse. When you're yeah. a corpse. And so many of these superstitions they go back to that same thing, no shoes on the table. No I hats have that on in tab- yeah.
1: yeah. Really? Yeah. If you leave your shoes up on the table, you'll fight.
0: Yes. <laughs> Light. see that if, if
1: the cat has its back to the fire there's a storm coming mm,
0: yeah I love these they're so good they're, and there's so many of them yeah yeah
1: when my cousin Tommy died I of mm. course made it over for the funeral which is when they started taking me seriously mm, I was, on a, I was on a plane before he was out of the house mm. and he w- of course he was taken to church the next day and uh, then onto the grave etc cetera, etc cetera. that night his sister said you sleep in Tommy's bed tonight. Mm. It'll do you no harm. Meaning, mm. the goodness that was in her brother, she wanted to have replicated in me. Mm. And by sleeping in the bed that he lived in and was laid out in, there was a hope that by some sort of spiritual osmosis, I'd become the better man she want. You know, she saw I her do. brother as. Yeah.
0: I, this is all so. It's so much f- for me. I- I don't know how is somebody like me and the other people who listen to me and this show, how are we supposed to live in this world with this kind of sensibility? I mean, what, do you have any
1: recommendations for us? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think try, try to separate what is essential about a funeral from what is accessory. Right. What is fundamental from what is just the fashion. Yes. You know, well said and, and so we get hung up on the boxes yes, and the price of boxes. Oh, yeah, big it's deal. It's not about boxes. It's big about deal. the body, okay? And the, and the elements of a funeral should include the corpse, the mourners. The story is so important. Somebody has to tell the story of that person's life. Your father's life had real meaning. To his wife, to his children, to his siblings, to his right. friends, his work. Somebody has to organize that and tell it. Usually an obituary makes a stab at it. Sure. But it's the first draft of biography. Yep. And somebody has, and the story also has to include more than just, uh, you know, he really liked to golf or he always cheated at bowling. It's got to include what he believed in and hoped yep. for. And that's why the church, whether or not the church, whether it's the church or the country club, we got to take the dead someplace and recalculate them so they're okay to put into the ground or the fire, Hmm. which you can't do with the body of someone you love unless some big medicine is taking place over that corpse.
0: That's right. Yeah. When
1: they sprinkle the holy water and have the sensor go around with the smell of incense going Mm -hmm. up, Mm -hmm. They're making the body okay to dispose of. Mm. That's the only reason we take the corpse to church. Mm. And the only reason the minister or the priest or the rabbi or the imam or whomever the poobah is who says, okay, get rid of it now. It's okay to, but that's not, that's not automatic. We have to have that pronounced for us. And then we have to take them and go with them to the grave, to the fire, to the tomb, to the sea, whatever abyss we're consigning them to, we have to go with them to the edge. And then we say, you stay there. We're going back because we have (coughs) a big meal to go. That's when the party comes on. Right, Right. That's when everybody can have a glass of wine and some cannoli and have it done right, you see. But first you got to get the work done. And the work involves the dead guy. Take care of the dead and the living will be fine. Yes. Yeah. These rituals are
0: important. Oh,
1: what
0: what else is there? What else is there? there? And I, and you, you say that perfectly because that's a lot, that's a lot of the work I do. And I think why people are attracted to what I'm, what I'm doing, because so many people are waking up and they're thinking, is there something else than this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There has to be something else. This can't be life. We're talking about a specific subject. We're talking about death and and mourning and burial. But even in that sphere, I think people sense that this is stripped of everything or most everything that matters and most everything that that gives life its its flavor and its depth and and its meaning. And you might, you know, you might go to the wake where you're chatting with everybody else and ha ha ha. But at night when you can't sleep, you know, you know, you have that feeling like there's something that's not, that's gnawing at you.
1: Well, I think you're on, I think we're, we're agreeing on this because your experience and my experience are both from sort of ethnically uh, capable cultures. So it, but I want to emphasize that it is, it is the duty of the culture whether the culture is defined ethnically or religiously right or geographically the neighborhood or the you know but the dumb thing is only done because the majority of folks say this is how you do that this yeah. if you want if you want to if you want to contract a marriage which is basically a deal this much land for for this a person who will move into your house and have your babies and cook your meals and that type of thing. The dowries sort of, it's a different thing. Now we don't, we don't step off fields and say this comes with my daughter, right? But we do, we do a version of a, of a deal when we go to a wedding. Hmm. And in some ways it's like a funeral. There's a great change of status when a man and a woman marry, they're changing everything for themselves. And we require witnesses because as in the case of Americans, about 48% of them will uh, divorce in the fullness of time. If the same witnesses showed up and said, no, we heard you, we heard what you said. And that, that witness is very important, whether it's to mark the death of one of our own kind, the marriage of one of our own kind, or the birth of one of our own kind. And that's why I've always said that essentially uh, a funeral without the body being there is like going to a baptism without the baby or a it's wedding. Really well the, said, well, it's, I stole it, of course, or a <laughs> wedding without the bride. <laughs> like this, any good artist. <laughs> these, are, these are the, these are the human dimensions. Right. And you know, when we have a birthday party, it's not about the cake. It's right. about the kid, you know? Yes. So, uh, yeah,
0: you have a great story in a booking passage in the beginning, in the introduction, where you talk about how you, you, your father taught you the trade and how he taught you well to understand different traditions, right? The different, and what he was teaching you was different morning traditions. So the Catholics are going to do it this way. The Presbyterians are going to do it this, this way. The, the Jews are going to do it this way kind of thing and how you've seen it change in your own lifetime now people, it's about like the urn and what the urn and people, I don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody listening, but also, I mean, it really caught my attention that, that now it's down to like, okay, well, if your husband liked to play golf, the body's been replaced by a, an urn that his ashes are in, that's in a, it looks like of golf, golf clubs. Yeah, it looks like golf bags. And you tell this story. I think it was, I don't think you were just, uh, you know, just like me using an example. I think it was a real example. It happened. Yeah. It happened. It
1: happens all the time.
0: There yeah. was that the body, everything you just said, the corpse, the mourners replaced by his golf bag was there. One of these, few, his real life golf bag. Yeah. Next to his
1: urn. Golf bag urn
0: golf bag urn. And, and everyone was like, oh, well, you know, he loved to play golf. He was always happiest. And that, that was the, that was the ritual. That was the funeral. And that's where we're at now. Hi friends. Just a quick moment to remind you that I also have an online shop full of beautiful old world style jewelry photos and vintage items you can check that out at bellafigurastore.etsy.com but you can also shop via instagram by clicking the view shop button on my profile and i am at at dolores underscore alfieri underscore Taranto. and of course a reminder that dry farm wines my favorite place in the world besides perhaps my basement (laughs) to get clean, organic, biodynamic wines, wines that are pure and free of toxins, additives, and refined sugar remains our partner for season three. Dryfarmwines.com forward slash Bella Figura will get you a bottle for just a penny in your first order this wine is more than just something you drink it's a way to learn about the world of natural and biodynamic wine and it's a way to elevate your table when you drink dry farm wines you are making an investment in what you put into your body just like you make an investment in buying good quality skincare products or good quality produce or good quality housewares or good quality pots that you cook with or good quality olive oil this is the next level my friends this is the next phase we talk a lot about how when you start to realize the way things are made in this world it's like a opening a box with a box inside of a box and maybe you start buying organic vegetables and then you move on to getting rid of your plastic tupperware and then eventually you can't drink anything else but the wines that Dry farm sources from small old world style family farms throughout the world friends check out the link below in the show notes dry farm wines forward slash bella figura to get a bottle for just a penny in your first order
1: I, I'm glad you brought that up because in in the last, say, 50 years, the biggest change in mortuary procedures has been the difference between burial and cremation. When I, when I started as a young funeral director, about 5% of the dead in our area were cremated. The vast majority were buried or yeah. entombed. Right. Um, now, two out of three are cremated Mm. and one out of three is, is buried. Mm. And so we, we, we are very pleased as a culture with the uh, industrial efficiency of fire, because it reduces, in my case, a 225 pound human into a, a 14 or 15 pound box of ashes. Right. But we don't, well, What we like is the efficiency. We just don't like the fire because most of us have grown up in a version of a religious tradition in which when we're in trouble with God, we go to hell where Mm. we burn. Mm. So we see fire as negative. Mm. Now, how we know this to be true, Dolores, is that every family that we arrange for a cremation, I tell the immediate family, you should come with us to the crematory it's not, you know, it's, it's, I said, you'll like, you'll appreciate being there. It's an important time to be there about, about one in 10, Hmm. maybe uh, about 15% Hmm. will say, okay, yeah, we'll have someone go. And I say to them, I just want you to know that we're doing it right. And if you go and watch us, we're going to do it right. right. Everyone who goes with me and there are very few, but Nobody who goes with me has ever said, "I wish I didn't come here." I believe you. Uniformly, they say, "I needed this. This was the best part." I believe. But, you. but still, we because we're so uncomfortable with fire. Now in Calcutta, the crematory is public. The fire is always burning. The family comes. The firstborn uh, has duties to begin the process of the fire for the the current corpse. Mm-hmm. I mean. But they see fire as purifying. Sure, sure. In their traditions, we see it as punitive.
0: It's so- the symbols we have attached to it that are getting in the way. Yeah, you know, you just made me think as you were telling that story. There's a bravery in being there at the end. That or that I don't, I don't know if it was always a bravery. No, I maybe it's become a bravery. It's become like a brave. Oh, she was brave. I don't know how you did it. I don't know. You know it, but it used to be very commonplace to be there as we've already discussed, yeah. you know, and, and it's the same thing with um, illness, you know, to be at somebody's side, right? It's, you, you there's, a, it takes a kind of bravery to face the, what is often a, not attractive, mm-hmm. not messy, again, not sexy, <laughs> you know, this, this very human real moment in life. Uh, I, I do, I do think as with the deterioration of so many rituals and traditions that we are the worst for all for all of this change. That's obviously my personal opinion. Um, I have certainly felt the lack of it. And when I hear of, you know, when I go to Southern Italy and I go to the cemeteries and where my mother tells me stories of when she was a kid, every all souls day, they would go to the cemetery. You, you yeah. so this is this is a custom. They would go to the cemetery, and they would take out all the bones of their ancestors and they would clean. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've told that story to people on Instagram, and people are like, "What are you?" Ki-? And I'm, I didn't even. I, this is how in my own world I am. That that surprised me that people were were like, "What?" Well, you know, because to me, I'm like, "Why aren't we still doing this?"
1: <laughs> it's part of a human drama that is. Uh, it's like. When my children were born, I attended their births, and you'd think I'd have, you know, run a four-minute mile in the Olympics because right. everybody, yeah. And I was sitting around there saying helpful things like "breathe" on "e breathe," and my wife looked at me like she wanted to kill me right away. <laughs> Why wouldn't she? She was in terrible distress, yeah. Yeah. only relieved by the delivery of another. Uh, of our children and um and then of course all is forgiven and forgotten and it's let's do this again you know that's right so uh that that's miraculous but i have to believe dolores that being present to observe the hard labor that is required of a human to bring another human into this world yeah a female human
0: yeah
1: um i think it makes me a better parent Mm. I don't know that it made me a better husband, but it made me a better mm. parent.
0: Mm.
1: And, um, and I think in the same way, by showing up for the hard duties surrounding a death in the family and pitching in and doing our part, our part might be digging a grave or making a casserole, right. but by showing up and doing our part, we have the satisfaction of saying, well, we did what we could.
0: That's exactly and right.
1: And it will be done for me.
0: That's right. Right. Which is what, yeah, maybe, maybe a lot of the way I am is uh, unconsciously hoping I'm putting uh, change in the jar so that, you know, when my time comes, uh, somebody does these things for me, you know, I, that's for sure. I think want the, that.
1: Uh, the deal that humans make among them generation after generation is still pretty much intact. Yeah yeah it's i think it's still pretty much intact and we have to keep reminding ourselves that we're we are mammals we are humans but we have uh we have we have an imagination and we have uh, a spiritual life that is absolutely yeah uh, di- different than orangutans you know? yeah and that
0: then the rituals and the customs that's part of the spiritual life, you know, and that that's kind of what I meant before when people feel they're lacking. Sure. You know, we're all awash in this society wondering why we're so tired and drained. We're so busy. We're wealthy. Most of us, quote unquote, you know, and in some shape or fashion, right? Most of us are not starving and who knew we'd be sick in ways that our ancestors never dreamed, right? When they had-
1: Regardless of how much we have or don't have, we have more money than time. Yes. Because that that clock keeps turning, that clock keeps turning, you know? That's right, yeah. And, um, yeah.
0: So I do want to move on to talking a little more about ancestry and and culture. Um, Before we move on, I just want to rewind just a slight bit. We don't have to go on and on about it, but in the Civil War and Death documentary, the big part of the point of that story, as I mentioned earlier, is that the civil war really changed a lot. And one of the things that changed was uh, the nation's faith. And you commented on this in the documentary, and you basically say something along the lines of, we can really mark the decline of faith in this country to the civil war. Well, do I have that right.
1: I don't know. I, I I can't remember what I said. I do know that the, the civil war changed a lot in the sense that for the first time ever, more Americans were dying away from home than in the home. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's when embalming, which is right, sort of nasty. central to the American way of death, uh, because we had to get the, we had to prepare these corpses in a way that would get them back from you know georgia to pennsylvania or whatever whatever we had to get give the family time but i i do think the civil war did create a a different a different knowledge of our religious expectations um, in the way that um, i'm sure covid did because when you have a million fairly anonymous deaths. Right. Um, it, it's, it bears more semblance to, for example, dropping a bomb on Hiroshima. We can't imagine, and the, and the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki could not imagine the cataclysm that had happened right. or the number of deaths. We can't imagine a million dead Americans.
0: Right, and this is what was happening during the Civil War. It's just something we kind of can't exactly. comprehend now, right? Yes, right.
1: And yeah. so, yeah, it was. It changed the way we thought about God mm-hmm. and whomever's in charge here. Yeah. And and um, so yeah, I I I do think that we end up with more with more wonder than certainty when it comes. Yes. to Yes.
0: Yeah, know? and it, that that's why I think that was such a compelling documentary which is before before that period people were pretty certain it was a very catholic um, not catholic christian country mm-hmm. and people would be kind of almost you know okay with death because they we'll i'll see you later like, i'll see you in heaven there right. was a there was an utter conviction in the afterlife and that we would all meet again
1: and Can you recall in that book they detail the last hours
0: mm-hmm. as
1: a as a way of saying oh, this person believed and therefore their faith secures their heaven. Right, right. Well, you know, they can make up a lot of stories. Yeah. And so, but they did them because they knew that the living cared about that kind of stuff.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, part of the ritual. And so then what happened during the Civil War is there was so much death Mm -hmm. and the dead were not buried. Uh, They were, the country was utterly underprepared for the scale of death that happened there was no ambulance corps there was no you know system for burying soldiers so fa- like millions of families i guess you know lo- had loved ones that just never came home and they never found their bodies they don't know where they are and and on the other side of that you had people just in their homes with the dead in, in their backyards or walking down the street or you know through an through a through a small country road and there would just be dead, the dead. So this psychic assaults, you know, this kind of assault on the psyche, just cha- people had a hard time after that, having that conviction
1: anymore. It's hard to believe a loving God's in charge. If yeah. you're a Ukrainian these days and right. you're walking down a small sure. street in your village and you find dead bodies in the gardens that's right and and uh, uh murdered people executed people Sure. Yep. Um, i wanted to return to something you said about Please. the civil war dead yes there's where where my people in ireland are buried i'm certain the same is true of your family in italy there are times whether because of war or famine or pestilence the mortuary infrastructure is overwhelmed in the same way that the mm. Financial or the social right. infrastructure is overwhelmed. There is a long trench in the middle of our cemetery uh, in County Clare. And that trench represents the pit in which the famine dead, mm. uh, uh, now almost two centuries ago, uh, overwhelmed the mortuary infrastructure of that little peninsula. Right. They couldn't have a wake and a funeral and a burial for everybody because they were dying too fast. Right. They would pick them up, put them on a cart, take them to the, the trench, put them in there, cover them with lime, cover them with earth, and just move on to the next one. The same thing has happened uh, in New York State, as you may recall, early in the and pe- mm-hmm. the pestilence yes. when they had, when they had um, common burials, and that was. That was hush-hush, but it was very offensive to most of our sensibilities because of for Americans, we get one per customer, you know? And right. It's, uh, uh, it's, yeah. uh, so there are times when the mortuary infrastructure is overwhelmed. Right. And, uh, yeah.
0: I mean, I possibly, not, I'm, I would say I'm almost positive. That's probably something that has not been seen on this land since the Civil War.
1: The, only, the, only in very localized versions of it, where yeah, right, where the like hospital had, when they had trucks, tragedy, refrigerator yeah. trucks outside the hospitals in New York yeah. City. That right. that's that's what it is. That's the metaphor for it.
0: Right, right. We so can't we, handle this. Right. You mentioned the famine, so it's a it's a good dovetail to talking a little bit more about culture and history and uh, ethnicity. And I I had to stop myself from making notes that I quote. I just keep reading from your book this whole time that we talk. I'm very
1: flattered by that. You carry
0: on with that. (laughs) (laughs) Stop, go on. Yes. I I highly, I will link to the book in the show notes, but I highly recommend that all of you read this, Uh, you know, even my, my Italian listeners out there, just because it's about Ireland and and Irish, it's no less compelling for you to read that. That's the connection I'm getting and, and I'm really enjoying it. And there's one thing I'd love for us to start talking about. You mention, uh, I'll just read this. I will read this passage. You say, my grandfather's grandfather, Patrick Lynch, was given this house, that you're talking about a house in Ireland, as a wedding gift when he married Honora Curry in 1853. They were both 26 years old and were not among the more than a million who starved or the more than a million who left Ireland in the middle of the 19th century in what today would be called a Holocaust or diaspora, but in their times was called the famine. And I just thought, okay, this is somebody I have to talk to because what I what I talk about a lot, and I have the first podcast that I had started that uh, that I now I'm co-host on. I pop on now and then is uh, based solely on Italian American culture, and we talk a lot about this. So many of us grew up being told that our grandparents, or like in my case, my parents, left Italy for quote a better life. Everything kind of becomes this. St- this sugar-coated euphemism for what actually happened. And it's the same thing with Ireland. We all know about it as the famine. And famine implies an accident of God, a punishment of God, right? Something that will just happen and left Italy, Southern Italy for a better life. These millions and millions of people who came here in the 19th century, the the, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, makes it sound like, well, they were just hanging out in Southern Italy. And then right one day they decided after centuries of living in the same place, <laughs> they suddenly one day decided I want a better life and I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. And we really never make the connection unless we become people like you and I, right. we be kind of come obsessed with our cultures and our history that these are, these are lies. These are just lies. And what, What really happened in Southern Italy was there was a failed, what we call a unification that was actually an invasion. It was an occupation and our ancestors in the South were starving and their entire way of life was was taken from them. They fled. They didn't leave for a better life. Why would they leave after they'd been there forever with their families? It was their home. But it's kind of transmuted into this um, this story, which may or may you could say may or may not matter, except obviously, I believe it does, because first of all, it's your own personal understanding of your identity, your blood, your blood memory, your family history. but it also, in this day and age, robs certain ethnicities of their story and like italian americans we've just become white people as if we just stepped onto these shores willingly and had not suffered and and had not been even lynched in this country it's a domino effect is my point i know you know what i'm saying i'm just laying it out for the for the listeners so when i read this in your book i thought ah the irish too Mm the Irish too. So could you talk about that a little bit? Well, how, why famine is a, is a, is a euphemism for what actually happened before you continue and answer that, uh, folks, I'm going to keep talking to Thomas here for a while. I want to talk to him a little bit about his belief in ancestry and ancestors. Are they still with us? Can we call on them for assistance? Does he believe in that? I also want to talk to him a little bit more about his experiences in reconnecting with his Irish relatives and his Irish homeland, because I know that a lot of you want to connect to family back, in, whether it's in Italy or, or another homeland. And um, I'm we're going to talk about all of that. But if you want to hear it, you're going to have to join me over on Substack because I'm saving the rest of this conversation for my Substack subscribers, it's linked in the show notes. Check it out and uh, join us for the rest of uh, what obviously is going to be a great conversation. And Anytime some your-
1: you call, I will answer. I, I
0: love it. You've <laughs> been an absolutely wonderful guest. I'm so grateful you took the time to join me. Thank you. My,
1: my pleasure, Lars. Take good care. God bless.
0: Thank you for joining me and Thomas for this really important conversation. Send me some messages either over on Instagram or at Dolores at bellafigurapodcast.com and let me know what you thought about this topic. Let me know if it resonated with you, if it uh, illuminated some things, and if you want to hear more episodes like this. Don't forget... You can find me on Instagram at Dolores underscore Alfieri underscore Taranto. Here's to knowing your roots and cultivating a beautiful life from their power.